to everyone. Uh, I'm your host as always, David Calvert, and thank you guys so, so much for joining me today. Uh, today on the uh, on the calendar here, I have Michael Maloney. Uh, he is the creator of the Maloney Method. It is an educational uh, process for gauging and engaging with students uh, so that you can actually see tangible uh, results and improvement on a day-to-day -day basis. I hope I got that explanation right, but I'll let you go into more uh, explanation there, Michael. And thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thanks, David. Glad to be on. Uh, happy to uh, talk to people about what's happening with their kids. I happen to be a school teacher from 100 years ago, also a school principal and a school psychologist. And many, many years ago, I uh, was fortunate enough to learn three different systems uh, for teaching children who, especially those who are at risk of school failure. Uh, the first one was behavior management, behavior modification. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have the uh, students and colleagues of B.F. Skinner as my mentor. Uh, that's not a sufficient answer to the problem because you can get kids to sit in their seats, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're learning anything. So when that happened to me in a classroom that I was working in, I went looking for, well, how do you teach these kids? And in the stacks of our local university, I found the what is called the follow-through project. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I'm not, no. Okay. Well, uh, you are like most North Americans, David. It's the largest single study ever done in education. The American taxpayers paid $1.2 billion to compare 16 different methods head-to-head -head to see which, if any of them, worked. And when it was all over, as you read in my note, one of them, direct instruction, accounted for first place in every category. And so the result was that I then flew out to Eugene, Oregon, and met my second mentor, uh, Zig Engelman, who taught me, now that you've got them in their seats, this is how you teach them. And uh, I came back to schools and routinely my teachers would have students gaining two years per year instead of the half a year that most special ed students get. And then I ran into another gentleman named Eric C. Houghton, and Eric was the first doctoral student of another man called Ogden Lindsley. Ogden Lindsley worked with Skinner, and he created a system for measuring progress that you can use in a minute or less. And so we could get daily measurements on how the children were progressing and chart that and keep that data. And the parents could actually see what the progress looked like because it, all you had to know is whether the line was going up, going down, or going flat. If it was either flat or down, that's bad news. If it's not going up, we got a problem. So we used that system uh, in a school district in Canada for about three and a half, four years, and got wonderful results. So that's that's who I am. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that's um, you know I, I listened to some of your interviews and read through some of the notes, and it's you know it's it's really interesting that more people aren't really catching on to this idea of taking that daily kind of progress and looking at that and saying, okay, well, they are making progress or they're not versus but they, they don't really want, they don't need to, and they don't want to. Uh, educational systems are not run on performance-based measures. They're run on a lot of different other things called 
budgets, unions, you know, state dictation or state dic edicts. Uh, students are about sixth or seventh in the list, somewhere down there. And uh, egos is probably one or two above them. So, you know, it's a, it's a very hard sell. In fact, we were so successful in our special ed classes with the teachers that we had working with us and some of the consultants that we had that the school district literally got rid of us. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reason they got rid of us was because parents were coming into the schools asking to have their grade five kid uh, moved into the special ed class. And the first time it happened, the, uh, the principals were all in a meeting and I was in that meeting and, and it came up as a joke and they all laughed and thought it was very funny. The 10th time it happened, it wasn't quite as funny. So the question is, why does mom want that grade five student placed into a special ed class? And the answer very simply was because the special ed kid can read, write, spell, and do math better than his grade five sibling. And school districts are not meant for quick, easy change. They're more like, you know, aircraft carriers. You need a lot of space to make a change in them. And so uh, they just got rid of us. And I, I know uh, growing up in the school system in the 80s uh, in, in America, you know, it was uh, definitely a different time. Uh, you know, if you were, if you really stood out, it was rare to actually get moved up a grade. It was more likely that you'd be put on Ridland uh, because yep. You know, you're, you're a straight-A student, but you're not working very hard, so you must be doing something else that the teacher just can't get you doing. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, so that was – my parents actually pulled me out of the public school system, uh, opting for homeschooling, because at the time there was really no other option where we lived. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's still true today. We have over 2 million homeschoolers in North America right now. And by and large, uh, it's been forced down the public school's throat. They are not homeschool friendly, in, by and large. Um, in Canada, there's only one province that even, allow, that even has or supports homeschooling, and that's in Alberta. The rest are all kind of homeschool noxious. So that's, uh, that's probably because of what it's costing them in grant money when you know, they take a child out. But Alberta's been very smart. They, uh, they just enroll the kids. They get the grant money. They let them use the gyms and the music rooms and the other facilities, and they incorporate them into the system. So uh, that should be the way we're going, but it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. I know they had some, uh, some systems in place where I could, like, go and play sports or things like that if I wanted to, or I could have, when I graduated, I could have, you know, walked, the, um, you know, at, uh, at a school, um, so they did have some programs like that here, but it was still very rudimentary. Um, yeah. When I went to go get my transcripts uh, to go to college, they were like, "Oh, we don't keep any records for homeschoolers, so right. you make your own." <laughs> so that was a little unusual. So, where did you grow up, David? Uh, I grew up in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. I was I was born in Ohio, but uh, we moved down here. Uh, my dad came down for work and uh, yeah, the schools just, you know, up there we had charter schools uh, down right. here. It was, it wasn't as uh, prevalent. So, um, you know, if you want to excel, you had to uh, come up with something else. Yeah. Too bad your dad didn't move to Wilmington. 
Yes, yeah, it's a beautiful city. I go there every chance well, I can. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. The top four charter schools in North Carolina are in Wilmington. Oh, in and around right. Wilmington. Uh, the result of one very incredible man who I had the, I've had the joy to work with, and uh, his schools just stand out head and shoulders above the rest because he uses the same systems that I was trained to use. I got very lucky. I had three incredible mentors, each of whom willingly shared everything they knew with me, but they never worked together. And so my friend and I just started, oh, well, then why don't we just put them together? So we started integrating the three systems. And it's, a, it's amazing what you can do when you have the right tools. And sadly, we do not teach our teachers how to use these systems. In fact, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the consortium of the federal government called the What Works Consortium. Okay, well, they are the ones who determine what gets distributed from the research out to the schools across the states. And recently, with no discussion, no warning, they cut out the two major studies of the method that I use and said, we're not distributing this anymore. Okay. Well, yeah. What it means is, of course, now is that research has a best before date. Yeah. It was 20 years old or older, they just ditched it. Despite the fact that each of these is a long empirical history, they each have their own journals, each of their own national conventions. You know, there's, it's just, it's ludicrous. No wonder we've got the problems in North America with education that we have. We refuse to be scientific. We refuse to look at research. We refuse to adopt anything that has any real significant hope of making a change and our kids are suffering for it. Oh yes. Yeah. And I've actually seen several, um, uh, videos and talks with like, uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and, uh, Michio Kako who have talked about how the education system in America really needs to change because we're so far behind. Uh, we're not even near the curve. <laughs> but the, the real sad thing is they never mentioned to you the follow through study in any of those talks you listened to. That is very true. This is the first time I'm hearing right. of so, it. <laughs> so they're not, they're not up on the research, and that research is now 40 years old. Wow. Yeah. So let's get in the game. You know, Do we really want to change children's lives? Well, if we do, we would be more like doctors than teachers. If a child goes into a hospital and has an illness and we can't diagnose it, there's going to be more and more testing goes on until, and more and more specialists brought in until we get a handle on this. The exact opposite is true in education. The more trouble the child is in, the less likely there is going to be any kind of zeroed-in specific process to get that child back on track. And mom and dad knows it. Mom and dad, they don't know what to ask. They don't know what's good, what's bad, what's indifferent. They have no way of telling, you know, what is going to be helpful to my child here. And the result of that is they spend more time buying a car than they do selecting a teacher or select, you know, checking out their kids' progress in schools. Yeah, yeah, you get that uh, uh, report card, you sign it, you mail it back in. That's really about it. 
you spend all day eight hours at a car dealership uh, just just to buy something. Five car dealerships. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't blame the teachers. And, and people say to me, Michael, you're anti-teacher. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not anti-teacher. I'm anti-teacher training. Or more specifically, I'm anti-teacher the lack of training. And what happens is our teachers are being sent into those classrooms with some half-baked idea and no data and no way to get any good data except for some kind of interval test that comes along once, maybe twice a year. And yet they're expected to take, take, to take 22 or 25, whatever the number is of, you know, hard charging kids and turn them into little stars. Well, good luck with that. If you give them the technology, they would get the job done. But they don't even know that the technology exists. And no one is making a concerted effort to make sure that they get to learn about that. Because, yeah. I mean, if they knew what, what to look for, it'd be a whole lot easier to find it. Well, I know what to look for. We've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. My company... And my centers and my colleagues have taught like 100,000 kids how to read. We give a money-back guarantee with our service because we know we can produce. We have the tools. My school district in 30 years never once knocked on my door and said, hey, Michael, what are you doing in here? Show, show us what, why you're getting all these great results. Never happened because they don't need to change. They just pawn the kids off as uh, some kind of learning disability, whack them full of Ritalin, and let them pass through the system, unscathed, our next generation of welfare clients. I mean, and that's sadly the way it is. I mean, it's just uh, to the point where it's like, you know, you think, you know, everyone keeps saying our children are our future. You would think that people are like, well, let's let's actually do something about that yeah. instead of yeah. turning okay. out a group of zombies. So much of your future, why do they rank so low on the list of priorities within a school district? Yeah. And these yes. people are not, they're not, you know, malicious. They're, they're well-meaning. They just don't know how to get it done, but they won't read the science. They won't bring empirical evidence to bear. So it's gonna be a long struggle. It's probably going to be about as long as the medical world had when they were first taught to wash their hands. You probably know the story of, of Semmelweis and the, his hospital in, in Austria, in Vienna, where he taught his graduate students to wash their hands between treatments. And young women were coming into the hospital and a third of them were dying of what is essentially, you know, a, uh, what they called childbirth fever, which was blood poisoning. And he forced his students to, to wash their hands between each student or each patient. And uh, his thanks for that, you know what happened to him? He was driven out of the hospital. It took medicine a hundred years to learn how to wash their hands. Well, we're 40 years in on this mission. 
We're not going to take 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to get there tomorrow. Oh, no. Are we there yet? Not quite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's so true. I mean, it, it's a lot of people are slow to accept things, even with, um, like one story that I'm also familiar with in the medical world about, you know, how heart surgery came about and how, you know, they tried to stop them from operating on, yeah. on, on parts of children, things like that, because they said it was unnatural. And, um, you know, it was against God's will. And it was one thing like in the medical text, it's do not touch the heart. And, you know, and they said, well, we're going to do it anyway, because we don't think anybody should watch their child have to die. And yeah. you know, it was a long time for them to actually well yeah well i'm i'm 50 years into it and uh i'm not sure how many more i've got left but we've uh, we will leave a trail even if we're not here because ogden and zig and fred taught me the tools and over the last five to seven years i've been sitting down writing them into books and we now have what essentially look like cookbooks the lesson is there and uh, the teacher just has to take step by step, just like following a recipe, and and deliver it, right? So, like, for example, in spelling, how many spelling rules do you know? Spelling rules? Um, yeah, rules for spelling. I before E, except after C and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's one. That's one. <laughs> Maybe three or four. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, you don't. You don't know four. I'll tell you that. Oh, okay. Well, not not many, obviously. And yeah, most people know <laughs> two. Change the Y to I and add E S. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's okay. one you're familiar with, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what the uh, the uh, E S rule is for pluralizing a noun or a verb? Okay, do you want a quick lesson on how to spell? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, here's a rule. Take your pen, write this down. Okay. If, if the word ends with CH, SH, S, X, or Z, add ES to make it plural. SH, CH, S, X, or Z equals ES. If it's not one of those, add S. Okay, you ready? Here comes the test. Church, uh, S or ES? ES. Yeah, why? It ends with C-H, uh, right. C, yeah, oh okay. yeah, yeah, sorry. I thought you said why as in. <laughs> no, no, tax. Tax, uh, ES. Why? Uh, because it ends in X. <laughs> it's right, it's one of the five, right? Yeah. Yeah, dog. Yes. Why? Uh, because it uh, ends in G. It doesn't end. It doesn't end in one of those, right? So what we do to be very effective teachers is we take a domain of language, like spelling, and you pull out the rules, like the S-E-S -E plural rule, and then you teach the kids some non-example, tree, S or E-S? Uh, S. Good. And then you teach them some examples, bush. Yes. Why? Um, because it ends in SH. Yeah. And then you force them to make that, you teach them the rules so they can literally verbatim say it to you correctly. 
and then you give them examples of it and non-examples of it, and you force them to discriminate. Does the rule work here? Does the rule work here? And then you make sure that they can do it quickly and easily so they never have a problem. Now, when you went to school, did you get uh, lists of words to study? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Did you ever see them again after you wrote the test? No. I mean, it's not from if I will flip Usually a student gets 25 words, right? Every Monday and on Friday is the test. Well, there are 40 weeks of school and they start spelling in about grade two. So uh, if you do six years of spelling up to and including grade seven, uh, you've got six years of spelling. 40 times 25 is a thousand times six, about 6,000 words you'll learn to spell. I have one program that'll teach children 12,600 words words in 125 lessons, each of which takes 15 minutes. It's a much faster, much more words. <laughs> more importantly, it's rule driven. They can look at the word and decide whether the rule works or not. They can take the word apart and say, well, this is why it's this way because the rule says change the Y to I yeah. or add ES or whatever. So you're not just equipping them with the words, you're equipping them with strategies to be able to figure out why the world or the word is spelt the way it is, right? Absolutely, and that makes perfect sense because understanding the why and really anything helps you conquer just uh -huh. about anything you're working on. It's easier to understand when you know why you're doing it versus just doing it because, yeah. well, somebody told you. So, so why aren't we using it? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a $64,000 question. Why aren't we training our teachers to use it? Another fantastic question. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why don't our parents know about this? Uh, somebody fucking word out. Yeah, because we're kind of a small pack of people in the world that happen to be aware of these things and happen to be able to turn them over to other people. And someday direct instruction will be the way to teach kids. And precision will be the way to manage kids' results. And behavior management, behavior modification will be the way you get them in their seats. But we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the one thing, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it was, I mean, just that, what you just showed me was so simple and so straightforward. And it was like, you know, the right people just start pushing this out. I mean, it could make a massive difference. But they have no reason, to, they have no motivation to do it. All they're going to get is pushback and pain. Right? They're pretty comfortable in the colleges of education with what they're doing because we can just blame it on the kid. Do you notice that dyslexia comes to and through the child, not anyone else? Isn't that funny? It's the kid who has the learning disability, not the teaching. Where's that at? Right. Right. Got a lot <laughs> of work to do. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Any case. 
Well, I mean, it's it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've learned quite a bit. I'm sure my my audience will as well. Um, what is the best way to to find you to learn more about this method to to help get the word out? Ah, uh, here's this is my two minute uh, ad for. <laughs> well, they could go to maloneymethod.com, M-A-L-O-N-E-Y method.com, and on there there's free testing. There's free training and reading, and there are actually 10 free lessons. And if they take a child through the 10 free lessons, if they're a beginning reader, they'll actually see a change in the child's performance at the end of 10 lessons. Uh, and there's, I wrote a book that just happened to win an, a, an award and become a bestseller. It's called Teach Your Children Well. Uh, they may want to, if they want an in-depth look at this, it would be a good idea to pick up a copy of that somewhere and, uh, you know, have a read. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will definitely have all that in the, uh, in the show notes as well, the links okay. and everything. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. It's been an honor. Well, my pleasure. If, uh, if you need a guest some other time, give me a call and we'll, uh, we'll have another chat. We can pick a subject area and have some fun. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, David. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. You take care. Do you think all coffee companies are the same? Are you sick of companies misusing their donations? Tattered Beans is different. Tattered Beans is a veteran-owned coffee company that donates a portion of all sales directly to veterans, active duty military, and first responders. From each $12 bag of coffee sold, Tattered Beans donates $4 directly to the profile the customer chooses. Sign up today at submit.tatterbeans.com Purchase coffee and support those who lay their lives on the line at tatteredbeans.com.